Welcome to a very special 94th episode of The Goods Film Podcast. It's special for a few reasons. One, we're in person. We're, we're sitting in the same room. It's uncommon. And two, Will's here. Japan. He came flew back. He's back in the United States. He's in my house. He's in my basement. And Brian's here too. Three of us in one room recording an episode of The Goods together. Unprecedented. Very special indeed, and we are going to be talking about a movie that Will selected. First of all, Brian and Will, say, say hi. How are we doing? Hello, number 94, <laughs> all here under one roof. Hey guys, it's Will. I want to say, Dan, every time I listen to a new episode, uh, it seems like the way you say the goods a film podcast gets more and more enthusiastic. Uh, yeah, here well, from get, Japan. We're getting gooder and gooder, I think. So, Will, what movie did you pick for us to watch? I picked uh, John Carpenter's They Live from uh, 1988, a sort of sci-fi cult classic. And this is the third time that Will has joined us on the podcast. Previous two times, he phoned in from Japan and he picked Asian films. So he picked Tokyo Drifter and then In the Mood for Love. And now that you're back in the U.S., you picked an American film. So we're, we're glad to have you our first time three-peater on the pod as far as guests go. And yeah, uh, They Live, John Carpenter, 1988. I had never seen this before. Uh, Brian, what about you? Yeah, I knew this one by reputation, and I'd seen some clips. This is one I learned about through James Rolfe's Monster Madness marathons in October. He did a review of this one that intrigued me, so I'm glad to finally check it off the list. I was inspired. I feel like we need to do a they month. Oh. All they movies. Or them, you know. What like are, the giant there's them, the giant ants, there's uh there's they live. I feel like there's one that's just called they, they. Is they're back? They're back. Uh, there's that we're the back. Oh, that's we're, we're back. Okay, gotcha. Uh but I'm sure there are others. Yeah. I, I had some in mind before I came today, but now I am scratching my head. They're out there though. <laughs> Maybe that's the name of a film. So, Will, why did you pick They Live as the selected film for us to talk about on your third appearance on The Goods? Well, um, there's a few reasons and I'll uh, come to me. First and foremost, I think my first two selections for The Goods, Tokyo Drifter and In the Mood for Love, did not really accurately portray my film viewing habits. If you heard me choose those two movies, you would think I'm some kind of snobby cinephile. But in reality, I'm a sucker for Marvel movies and franchise films and B films and everything like that. And uh, so I figured they live. It's a cult pick, but it's definitely, uh, you know, you're not going to find it on number 50 on the they shoot pictures, don't they? Like you would find in the mood for love or even in, uh, you know, the sort of same status that a uh, Japanese cult film would have like Tokyo Drifter. So that was the first movie I wanted to. Pick something a little bit more schlockier, a little bit more up my alley. Um, and the second reason is kind of related to that. I feel like my, you guys talk about it a lot, a Dan pick and a Brian pick. I figure my first two movies were a little bit uh, probably closer to Dan picks, especially In the Mood for Love, a sort of a substanceless movie about atmosphere or whatever. Um, and then, so for this one, I tried really to 
hone in on a movie uh, that I thought Brian would enjoy. And this especially I was thinking of his enjoyment for the movie Repo Man. I figured another sort of 80s cult classic film uh, would be right up his alley. Yeah, and we'll have to see if that's borne out. And, and maybe, just maybe it will be. Yeah, and aside from my uh, the reasons pertaining to the podcast, this definitely was one that I had heard of before. I was thinking of picking John Carpenter's The Thing, but I'm not really one for horror movies, and I figured one or both of you might have seen that one before. This is a little bit less notable, and also I would say has a little bit more reverence within the gaming community for, I'm sure some quotes we'll talk about in the future, and just it's sort of prestige as that like uh, schlocky 80s aesthetic that I think really bore out in a lot of like the Dooms and the Duke Nukems and stuff like that. And I think this uh, film embodies that. And so because I am a bit of a gamer and uh, I, I decided to go with this one. Yeah. Good pick. And what what John Carpenter movies have we seen prior to this? So I, I've seen The Thing and I actually have been thinking I might pick Halloween this spooktober as a little preview for listeners. But I actually, the the thing is, I believe, the only Carpenter that I've ever seen. So uh, what about you, Brian? Have you seen any John Carpenter movies? So this might be disturbing. I don't know if I've watched a John Carpenter movie other than this one that we did just for this week. Haven't seen the original Halloween. And I'm looking down a list real quick. Big Trouble in Little China? Nope. Escape from New York? No. Yeah, or, I think you're I think you're right. I that this this was my first. Yeah, I I also was a uh, John Carpenter virgin before uh, watching this movie, and um, I got to say, so far I enjoy a lot of the style, but we'll get into that. So this movie stars professional wrestler Roddy Piper as a man who remains nameless throughout the film. But the credits refer to him as Nada and also Keith David as a man named Frank, who's kind of the, the co-star. We'll definitely be talking more about both these actors, quote unquote actors, as far as Roddy Piper goes. And the way that we, we watch this is, is Brian, Will and I, we, we each watch the movie. And then today we came together and watched the movie again together with the commentary on the special edition of the DVD. And that audio commentary included John Carpenter and Roddy Piper. I think we determined it was recorded in either 2001 or 2002, probably 2002. And the way that we determined this gradually as it went along was, well, it prominently talks about (laughs) 9-11, fresh in people's minds. But then Roddy Piper also announces that he's working on launching the XWF, the like Extreme Wrestling Federation. We looked that one up and it said it was a wrestling franchise that existed from 2001 to 2002. So yeah, but pretty this, squarely pinpointed there. But this guy, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, what? I think he's huge in the world of wrestling, but outside of that, I had never heard of him before this movie because I'm not much of a wrestling connoisseur myself. I think he's one of the founding fathers of wrestling, at least like modern professional wrestling. And uh, he's like, you know, a Hall of Famer type guy, but also obviously predates the people who were big when we were kids, like Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock and all them. And even Hulk Hogan, um, although around the same time. 
right? The way I knew about him obliquely before I ever knew that he was Rowdy Roddy Piper was there's an old Simpsons joke where there's like a Jerry Springer type show and one of the subjects is groundskeeper Willie and he's being brought on the show because apparently he's like a voyeur and they call him Rowdy Roddy Peeper because, <laughs> of course, he is also a Scottish stereotype. Yeah, I took the liberty of uh, perusing his Wikipedia page. And first of all, I think if we're separating Wikipedia pages into classes, perhaps the most interesting class of Wikipedia page to read is that of a professional wrestler. Because it is, I don't know how much you know about professional wrestling, but it's some it's somewhere between a performance art and a sport. And uh, similarly, their Wikipedia pages read somewhere between a biography and a fantasy story. <laughs> and um, first of all, Rowdy Roddy Piper, I think he was most famous as a heel, one of the most famous heels. And what that means, you probably heard the expression, at least a heel turn. But in professional wrestling, they have the concept of a face and a heel. A face is the good guy and the heel is the bad guy, basically. And I uh, took a couple of paragraphs from his... Um, biography, and I want to read you for them now, just to give you a sense of what kind of professional wrestler this guy, Rowdy Roddy Piper, was. So here's one, said, uh, when he was sort of an amateur wrestler. During this time, he made continuous insults directed at the area's Mexican community. He later promised to repent by playing the Mexican national anthem on his bagpipes, only to anger the fans further by paying La Cucaracha instead, <laughs> which in turn caused a riot. And then later, during one of his interview show. He insulted one of the wrestlers, Polynesian Heritage, and attacked him by smashing him over the head with a coconut. So he was a bit of an abrasive character in the wrestling community, to say the least. I think my favorite tidbit of that is that Roddy Piper plays or played the bagpipes. I want a video of him playing the bagpipes. There was another one where they said that in one of his matches, somebody stuffed his bagpipes with toilet paper so he could not play them when he did his walkout or something like that. He was uh, his his whole persona was a uh, angry Scottish guy, although in actuality he was Canadian. Which Brian noticed because we've talked about this on the pod. Canadians have a few words they say, and the giveaway for Brian is is what word, Brian? Sorry, they say a long O sound. They don't say when I pronounce it, I say sorry, S A H R Y. But no, with them it's it's like S O H. Or why? Sorry, like they're soaring through the sky. Sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, we watched this commentary with John Carpenter and Roddy Piper, and I think the consensus between the three of us was that it wasn't the most illuminating. Uh, Roddy Piper seemed like a very out-there character who probably has suffered some hits on the head over his career, although he was still fairly coherent. He wasn't that incoherent, but he... He just kind of was rambling about memories he had and thoughts that he had about different things. And John Carpenter would get in a line here or there, but it basically was two buddies reminiscing rather than really any sort of uh, analytical breakdown. Although I think maybe we, we have a couple of little tidbits that we learned from it that we can sprinkle in as we go. But you said it was a more substantive commentary track than some, right? More yeah. worthwhile? The bedazzled episode... I mentioned that I watched two commentaries and one of them was Elizabeth Hurley's with one of the producers. And that one was even less substantial than this one. So it's not bottom of the rung, but you know, that's the thing about commentaries is it's just a way to get inside the head of someone who was involved with the film for 
a little bit. And sometimes getting inside the head is interesting, and sometimes it's not very interesting. So. Yeah, recommended primarily for Roddy Piper fans rather than They Live fans, I would I recently, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I have been getting back into really classic films for my 1001 movies to watch before you die rewatch in chronological order. And a lot of silent films have commentary tracks by film historians. And I think you don't need to stretch your imagination too far to figure out that these are a little bit more insightful than Rowdy Roddy Piper. <laughs> oh, so you enjoyed those? Yes, quite okay. a bit. Yeah. Nice. Uh, I mean, yeah, maybe a little bit less colorful, although these guys, they, they tend to be pretty interesting and pretty articulate and sometimes funny, too. So That is cool. I always respected that guy and saying that I ought to know his name, but who would introduce all the Turner Classic Movie broadcasts. Mm. What was his name? Oh, you mean the, the critic? Yeah. Not Moulton. Oh, that's who I thought you were talking The about. guy on Turner Classic Movie. I don't know who that is. Okay. He would, he would like start off the broadcast and say what the movie was going to be and why you should watch it. Interesting. I think they should replace him with Roddy Piper. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he's dead at this point, yeah. as is Roddy Piper. So, so. is Roddy Piper, rest in <laughs> yeah. peace. So I think we should start talking about the movie. Do you guys have any other prelude you want to give? Do you want to talk about Keith David? Oh, we can talk about him as we go. Yeah. Okay. So this movie opens with a homeless man. I guess I'll call him Nada, as that's how he is credited. I wrote my notes just calling him the man or the homeless man because he, he remains nameless. I think we could just call him Roddy Piper if we yeah, want. Yeah, That's what is, I do with Ed Norton in Fight Club. Oh, yeah, that, that makes it easier. Yeah, this is the second film I have brought featuring heavily a drifter, although this one is not a Tokyo drifter. That's true. But a uh, L.A. drifter. Anyways, this homeless man who is Roddy Piper indeed, he is wandering around Los Angeles looking for a job you know, knocking on doors and he crosses paths with this black blind sort of weirdo preacher who is talking about, I don't remember the specifics of his, his monologue, but um, there's like an unspecified they that are controlling humanity. And so this is kind of the intro we get into the film. Like before the plot proper starts, a dude wandering around LA, weird vibes, very eighties kind of, you get slightly surreal production design. I don't know about you guys, but at this moment, I was thinking like, I didn't even know if this was supposed to be like a post-apocalyptic thing because it's like kind of a 80s street jungle type vibe. Like, I, I, I don't know what the name is of, of that vibe, but it was a big in the 80s. Did you know about much about this movie going in? I knew nothing about this movie okay. going in. Oh, the other thing I forgot to mention when I was talking about why I picked it. I had seen the South Park parody of the fight from this movie that we will get into later. So I knew it was like, I knew the the, the whole alien shtick that we'll get to. But other than that, I, I was pretty, uh, you're right. It could have been the way, especially with the John Carpenter soundtrack is very like booming and synthy and like not very precise. And it's not like orchestral or anything. It's almost it's dark and synthy. So yeah, I, the, the post-apocalyptic or the sort of like very downtrodden vibe where it's run down like concrete jungle. I can get that. I agree with you there. And thanks, Will, for the reminder. I forgot to mention this at the beginning, but we're going to be doing the top five. First one in a while. We're going to be our, doing our top five fight scenes from movies. And we will get to that after we finish talking about They Live. But yeah, so this movie, after we kind of get this this glimpse of Whatever weirdness is going on in L.A., 
everybody's into weirdness these days. Isn't that what they say in Repo Man? Is that also LA? It's got to be, right? I think it is, yeah. Uh, there is a lot of Repo Man connections for me in this, and we'll, we'll talk about a couple of them. But he eventually finds a construction site where he's able to get a job. And this is where he meets Frank, who's another construction worker. And Frank is played by Keith David, who is a black actor that you might know from a whole bunch of different things. He's He's been popping up and stuff for, I guess, what... <laughs> 35 years at least now. Yeah, I think his breakout was actually The Thing, which was a few years before they live. And I think this role was written for him because John Carpenter liked him in The Thing. But I know him most familiarly as the General Anderson from the Mass Effect series. That's probably uh, the most time I've spent listening to his voice was as a voice actor for uh, from a video game. For me, it's because he was Goliath, the star of Gargoyles. On the Disney afternoon in the very early 90s. My main one is in Community, one of my favorite TV shows of all time. In I think it's the sixth and final season, he becomes one of the regular cast members. The guy named Elroy, what's his last name? Elroy Potashnik or something yeah. like that. And uh, he is absolutely hilarious in that. It's, every time I watch his episodes, I, I grow more fond of his performance. He's got some... Great line deliveries. Will and I were at a beach house last week and we were watching some community clips. What are are some of the best ones? Well, the one the one that we kept coming back to was uh, so paintball as a shtick is it's it's like it comes back. All their sort of climactic episodes in community are about paintball. And at one point they're talking about paintball and he just looks at the group. He goes paint ball. It's pretty good. And then I think his most famous line at least the one I've seen referenced the most often, whatever corners of the internet that I hang around that refer to obscure season six community scenes anyways, is there's one little plot thread in one of the episodes where he's addicted to praising white people. Well, it's encouraging. Encouraging. That's even better. They're down on themselves. (laughs) He's got to make them feel better. The way he described it, he says, you just got to find a white person and say, Hey, you just keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) So now uh, that's a man who knows how to get some meatballs or and then, something like that. But the way he described it, he says, uh, but as with any addiction, sometimes you take it too far. And then it flashes to him at the reception, yeah. singing with the microphone, <laughs> praising a guy for wearing pants. And it's like, <laughs> look at the pants on this guy. You keep wearing pants. Anyways, the way that episode resolves is the wedding that they're at ends up being between two characters who didn't realize that they are cousins or second cousins or something like that. And then he jumps up and he says, now there's a man that knows how to marry his cousin. And it's uh, absolutely terrific delivery, probably in my top 20 line deliveries in, in TV comedy history. But yeah, I think I think we're all fond of Keith David here. One last one that I thought about recently is he voices the villain in Princess and the Frog. Or yeah, Dr. Facilier. Yeah. The and he's also doctor. the, uh, I love Adventure Time. And if you go back to your old culture blog uh, earn this.net i have a i wrote i guest wrote a top 25 adventure time episodes um and he plays the i think his name is the flame king who is uh a recurring character he's not a lead role but he's a recurring character on that so anyways after they their work day is done frank keith david uh takes nada to this little I guess they call it a shanty town in the commentary, 
I was thinking it was like a, a little co-op almost. It's like all these poor homeless people working together kind of in this little it's a parking lot, I guess. And they're making like little sleeping areas and stuff. I guess you'd call it a shanty town. Yeah, I guess it's just an abandoned lot where homeless people congregate. And uh, I guess when you're homeless, there's the simultaneous problem of finding a place to sleep and also finding somewhere where the police won't bother you. And so they tend to congregate in abandoned lots and stuff like that, I guess. I think there's a kind of silent understanding with law enforcement that they won't mess with you here. Not that I have ever been homeless, so I cannot uh, really speak from experience. But, you know, that's my that was my understanding watching it. And this whatever you want to call it, this this shanty town is led by this guy named Gilbert. And we kind of see as as he's settling in here, we get glimpses of TVs in the nearby neighborhood and there are TV broadcasts that are being disrupted by this guy. It's like he's infiltrating the airwaves and he claims that TV signals are enslaving the population and that the TV signals need to be stopped at their source or, or some sort of, you know, what sounds like a conspiracy theory mumbo jumbo you know, stereotypical uh, aluminum foil on the head type conspiracy theory. I think it's interesting to note that the Max Headroom piracy broadcast occurred the year before this movie was made in 1987. Uh, signal intrusion. That's what they called it. When are you familiar? Only very vaguely. Why don't you explain it to us? All right. So I believe what was being shown on the channel was an episode of Doctor Who, like a really old Doctor Who episode. Well, probably less old at the time because it was 1987. But this guy breaks in like he presumably he had access to some high level broadcasting antenna to be able to do this. And I'm not super knowledgeable about the tech involved, but he had some kind of tech that would let him break in to the signal. And... He shows up on screen wearing a Max Headroom mask, who is an 80s spokes character who is kind of a fake virtual person. And, you know, it was almost kind of the thing that Max Headroom would do because he like lives in a television. But anyway, this dude in the mask has like this distorted voice and he delivers this kind of nonsensical message, but because so many people have poured over the tape since they like have got this very detailed uh, commentary track of what he says. And he says he's leaving this message to be dissected by the greatest newspaper nerds. And I don't know, it's just, <laughs> it's some message that he's like giving to the, the media savvy populace. I very much had that on my mind watching this movie, and I had to think some of the people involved in making it were also thinking of it. Right. This idea that some rogue agent could infiltrate our media consumption and deliver some message that has some deeper meaning, perhaps some like uh, subconscious meaning to it or something. Right. Breaking through. Yeah. Nada, meanwhile, observes something unusual going on in a nearby church it sounds like a choir is always singing there so he goes and investigates and he discovers that the choir is actually a recording playing on loop and what's actually going on there is a group of people 
including Gilbert, the head of the shantytown, and that one preacher who accosted him earlier. Yeah, one thing, I think there's an interesting cut when the broadcast is playing on the TV. So what it, it, it does is it cuts between the, the corny scientist guy on the TV saying words, and then it'll cut to the preacher, and it'll show him mouthing along the same words. So this sort of, uh, this preacher guy who we have already seen saying these weird things, it uh, has an interesting scene where, where it establishes that connection while the inserted broadcast is playing the hijacked broadcast that is and what what nada sees in the church is this group of people um who we kind of all are now grouping together as this i don't know some people who are collaborating on something is that they're in this church dealing with this electronics equipment they're up to something it's not quite clear exactly what it is at this point but there's something going on and that night the cops come and they raid both the this area where all these homeless people are living and they raid the church. And so now a lot of the people that, you know, he had been staying with are kind of on the run now, running out. There's kind of mass chaos. And back in the church, uh, Nada, Roddy Piper, discovers this box of black sunglasses and he, he grabs the box of sunglasses while kind of all these people are running around, escaping the cops. And then he dramatically puts them on. And when he he puts these glasses on, he starts seeing the world different. So this is, I think, one of the most interesting scenes of the movie. I would have to imagine it's one of the most iconic ones, at least it like hits on the theme of the film. Because when he puts these on, he sees the world different. He's got a new vision now. He can see the world as it really is. And what are some of the things that he sees? Well, the world's in black and white, for one. And any media, mass media message, he can peer through and see the subliminal subtext. And generally, it's just big white blank squares with one word emphasized or two words. And it's always something like obey or consume breed and reproduce and it aesthetically it really reminded me of repo man because one of the distinctive things of repo man is that all of the products that you can buy off the shelves have plain white labels with black text so you're not going to go buy budweiser beer at the convenience store you're going to walk in there and you're going to buy a six pack of white cans that have the word beer on it in plain black text and it's definitely a similar aesthetic and also somewhat of like a kind of a similar purpose of kind of deconstructing the way that corporations and marketing and advertising kind of fancy up their stuff to really just hit your lizard brain in some way. Yeah, they have a whole big newsstand of just these blank white magazines with the solid black text. And I would have liked to have seen a shelf of Repo Man food up alongside this newsstand. But the big thing, even beyond all that, that he sees is a bunch of the people that are wandering the streets don't look like people anymore. Will, what do these people look like? They look, I guess, like ghouls. They have the figures of human, but instead of having normal human faces, well, it looks like they all were wearing some kind of toupee, but their faces are all these like huge, sunken, almost reptilian eyes, and their mouths are... You've got the lips stri- stripped back, so it's just teeth, and it's like their flesh is decaying, or it's almost skinless. 
So they're human-ish, but at the same time, their faces are so deformed that there's certainly something alien about them. Right. And the thing that I thought of with these aliens, I don't know if we know right away that they're aliens. It becomes gradually clear that they are aliens. I think you see spaceships and such, so it's, uh, I guess... Uh, a savvy viewer would infer they are aliens based on the tech level and stuff like that, but it's not confirmed until much later. I think you're right. But I thought they looked like, if you've ever seen pictures of Egyptian mummies with their face kind of decayed and like their skin crawling, like kind of uh, sunken back and tightened back and just kind of not very skin looking anymore. I, I confess, uh, the thing that I thought of when I saw them, and this is going to sound kind of goofy, but some kind of fucked up Furby, almost like a <laughs> hybrid be- between a Furby and a human. Yeah, like, what it's like to me, and granted for the lion's share of the movie, you only see them in black and white. But, you know, if you see the poster or you see the DVD cover, in color, they're blue and red, like the bear flesh bits are red like they would be on a person but the skin is like bluish and to me it looks almost like a luchador mask it's like a like a mexican wrestler skeleton Uh like a sugar skull i i think day of the dead interesting so like uh like the characters in coco i I recently rewatched that one basically skeletons with the sort of uh, almost like black highlights where the bones are right Mm -hmm. tracing the structure interesting so we have Roddy Piper now seeing the world as it really is with his magic sci-fi sunglasses. And he's just kind of soaking everything in. We get this multi-minute scene of essentially him just walking around looking at the world through these glasses. And who are the aliens primarily? I think it makes it clear pretty quickly the type of person who is these alien figures. Right. They're typically rich people and typically powerful people. I think every probably every single one you see is also a white person. I don't think there's a single like you know black person who is a uh, one of the aliens. But that's a good point. I don't know if that was intentional mm-hmm. or not. And and this is really when it becomes quite obvious that this is not just strictly a sci-fi story. It is a pointed social satire. So we can talk a little bit about this. I don't think it is an uncommon viewpoint among really any political group that rich people are manipulating things. The powerful are manipulating things against them. Brian, what were your thoughts on the kind of nature of this commentary? Okay, so I was going to hold off the rant for a little while, but I I I will dive in now, I guess. Uh, But if anything, this film has gotten more popular and more ingrained in the zeitgeist in the years since it came out. Like, I don't know how big of a splash it made when it was initially released, but it wasn't huge. Uh, But it remains in the cultural awareness today. And what I'll say is that the people I see sharing they live memes online tend to be right wingers. And that was the perception I had before watching this movie. Uh, Whereas I'll say watching it and listening to some of the commentary, it's clear that Carpenter was making this as kind of an anti-Reagan and Reaganomics parable, certainly anti-capitalist, that it's capitalist systems that oppress the underclass and, and lead to this system where they are just further and further oppressed. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you said, Dan, that this is where the social commentary comes really into the forefront. Because I think from the start, it's almost like abundantly clear. You described the sort of post-apocalyptic feel. But we basically, our casts are homeless people. And one of the first scenes we have is not a uh, Roddy Piper going to a, I think it's an unemployment agency. And he's like, I've got my tool, I can work. And he basically gets dismissed. So I think even before the sci-fi element comes through, there's clearly some underlying economic commentary coming through here. But yeah, I I guess you're right. This is where it hits you in the face with it because we get the guy in the suit at the newsstand asking uh, with the ghoul face, the Furby face, asking um, Roddy Piper if he's got a problem. But as it goes along, I would argue that I can see how this film could be embraced by extremists on both sides of the political aisle. Because, while yes, it's anti-capitalist, I think more broadly it's against the elite. And as you said, I don't think really anybody's going to argue that rich people pull the strings of power. Yeah, it's just whether if you go to certain far-right or uh, you know extremist groups, you end up with like Nazis who say it's a Jewish cabal. Right, well, it's about a small cater of wealthy... In this case, non-humans ruling the world through subterfuge and through controlling the media. So it's it's basically the elders of Zion. Uh, yeah, the the old conspiracy theory. JQ. Um, yeah, it's uh, that was one of my. I was a little like so when I came out of this movie. I, that was one of the thoughts I had myself. I said, I'm almost a hundred percent sure this some neo-Nazi has watched this movie and been like, yeah, this is this this movie gets it, despite the fact that it's you know pretty I think overtly a uh, anti-capitalist thing. Someone's going to read it and say, oh yes, this is about uh, Jewish people controlling everything. Right, but multiple times they call out globalism. They say, there are no more nations. It's basically the multimedia, the mass media is this power that supersedes all nations and they're the ones broadcasting these subliminal messages. They're this force of brainwashing and indoctrination, pushing their insidious agenda. And I very much see that in the the right-wing talking points these days. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a choice of the film. And I think it maybe weakens and waters down the satire effect of, to some extent, the fact that it's like so on the nose and just not very incisive in its... Uh, I don't know if ham-fisted. Well, it certainly is somewhat ham-fisted. It's like bluntly uh, commentary. It's not even beating around the bush at all. The, the sign that I think tells you that it's anti-Reagan rather than pro-right-wing argument is there are some of these brainwashing signs say marry and reproduce. Whereas I think if it were the other way around, it would say something like question your gender. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, I don't know about the 80s. Maybe in 2022. 20, yeah. Well, that's what a, I mean is if it was a pro, oh. if it was like to scare you against leftists, that's yeah. what it would say. Um, Interesting. The other one I was going to say is the other thing that makes it really heavy handed is the like the first cops you see. First of all, the cops are the ones who bust down the church right at the start. And then coming up, I, I know we've completely derailed the recap at this point, but coming up in the recap, he conflicts with or he has a conflict with two cops who are, you know, both aliens, so um, I think it is, it's pretty apparent that the cops are controlled by the alien cabal, if you would call it that. So yeah, that I mean, that is basically what happens next, is, is uh, 
Roddy Piper, Nada, he, he's wandering around the streets of L.A., clashing with various alien types that he comes across, uh, causing trouble. And then he gets cornered by some cops because apparently the aliens figure out that he's kind of onto them and they signal the cops and the cops corner him and he attacks the cops and kills the cops and he, he sees them as aliens and he gets their guns and he kind of goes on a spree here leading to this one scene that I think is, has at least the most iconic line of the film. Um, he walks into this bank. I'm just imagining, like imagine you're a dude in this bank. You're going to the bank. You got to get your cash out. You got to go pay your rent or buy your dinner or something. And this dude with this wild energy, this pro wrestler energy comes in wearing sunglasses, holding a shotgun. And, and what's the line that he says, Will? By the way, no quips really in this movie prior to this line. There's a couple, but yes, yeah, it's it's, rel- it's it's actually relatively dialogue sparse for the first 45 minutes, I would say. There's a lot of him walking around and watching stuff. But uh, anyway, the line goes, I have come here to uh, kick ass and chew bubblegum. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And then he starts shooting around, the like killing the clerks behind the bank. And all, he never had bubblegum. At no point earlier in the movie does he chew bubblegum. He doesn't walk in chewing bubblegum. I assumed, because I knew about this line before, yeah, it's I a, thought he would at least be chewing his last piece. But at no other point in the movie is he ever shown chewing I think bubble you gum. need, you gotta have him chewing gum, and then, like, he walks in, and he spits out the gum, and then he says the line. You just give a little context to the bubblegum. It doesn't make any sense. And this is obviously, this line was re- made really famous, I think, at least among people of my generation, because it was a Duke Nukem line, and it, it, it kind of gets got memed to shreds because of that. And I just always assumed there was some context to the bubblegum part of the line. But here I am, bubblegumless. It's just a, a guy who's gone insane in a bank. Who knows? And I think the commentary said uh, that Piper actually brought this line to Carpenter. And Carpenter liked it and, and brought it in. I think that's something they said. But um, yeah, one thing we haven't talked about yet that I think becomes gradually more apparent as the movie goes on, especially as we get some of these action scenes, is that the energy that Piper brings, the physicality, is um, let's see, reveals his experience as a professional wrestler. He gets really into it as the stunts. Or sorry, he gets really into it with the stunts. But in particular, like the moves that are like grapple and jumping moves always feel like a wrestler in a ring doing his moves. Yeah. And the commentary track uh, when he's fighting the police, John Carpenter mentions that he had never seen somebody clothesline a dude like outside of a wrestling ring. And then obviously that's the move that uh, Roddy Piper uses to take down one of the cops. And he just like the way he lifts people up and everything like that. I just watching it i was like okay this guy like it's very wwe very professional wrestling the way he lifts people and grapples people and everything i think it's a pretty interesting performance i don't know if that's the same thing as a good performance but it brings some stuff to the table that you don't typically see that like really adds at least some flavor to the to the role where he he just has this really gruff and gritty physicality about him like he's dangerous always and it's not in your typical martial artist sort of way. He's kind of like if you ever watch martial arts movies 
there's usually an enforcer type guy at some point who's like this one really big buff guy that the martial artist needs to take down, even though it looks like he can't overcome the big enforcer type guy. Here, Roddy Piper is the enforcer type guy. Yeah, and even Keith David has that same kind of energy to him. He's also like a pretty big, top-heavy, burly guy who looks like he could uh, go a few rounds in the ring, which, you know, we'll see. He probably goes four or five in that one fight <laughs> coming up. But anyway. So after he kind of goes on this crazy spree around L.A., um, he the, he knows the cops are after him. And he hijacks this woman's car. So there's this woman in the car. And he he hijacks it with her still in there. And she just happens to be a TV station executive. Her name is Holly. And he basically says, take me to your house. So she brings him to, she's got like a nice fancy apartment. And in this apartment, it's, it's interesting. Just in general, um, I, I think if you look at some of the actions that Roddy Piper takes from the outside... You know, we know that he can see what he can see, but if you can't see what he can see, he comes across as like a super, they use the word terrorist later, so I'm not making that up. He comes across kind of like a a terrorist or like a a rabble rouser. He's like uh, taking hostages, shooting up banks, shouting about conspiracies, like running around with guns. Pretty interesting to like think about how this might be seen if, if you can't see, quote unquote, the truth. He certainly seems uh, mentally disturbed in some way, like he's being controlled by the conspiracy almost. The ideas have sunk deep enough into his skull that he doesn't really have any mental facility to control his actions anymore. And which extends to, you know, shooting a bank. And obviously we know he's just killing the aliens, but everybody else just sees it as indiscriminate. And we see him like we know he's trying to hide from the evil alien police. But yeah. Mm. So something that surprised me a little bit was that once he starts ranting and raving that there's aliens around, pretty quickly the aliens start talking to each other in brusque tones like, oh, we got to do something about this guy. We've got somebody who can see through our illusion. We got to round him up. I think they should have played it cool. Like they should have not acknowledged it. They should have been like, what the hell are you talking about? Dude, when there's only one guy who's got the glasses running around crazy, they should just act like he's crazy. Nobody else sees through the ruse other than, I mean, eventually we realize that those folks at the beginning could, but it seems like they've shut them down. We don't know till later in the movie that there's more. But it, if I was one of those aliens, I would have had confidence in my disguise and just been like, yo, this dude is nuts. I like that. Play it cool because then it makes him look crazy. Yeah, yeah. Because if they're Don't like, if they're panicking, level. it's giving him credence. Right, right. But this this woman Holly that he's kind of abducted, who is a hostage. human, but she's a human, by the way. Right, she's not an alien. She's a human, but she's like a high power executive, and she Useful. works and she works in the media. Yeah. So as we go along, we realize that you know not every cop is an alien, not every media personality is an alien there's humans sprinkled through the ranks yeah i think it has already happened by this point but he encounters one cop um who's a human and he just tells the guy to drop it and run away and uh because you know he doesn't he's only killing the aliens not the humans so this woman he has obviously a tense conversation with and he's trying to convince her 
that aliens are real and you'll just understand if you look through these glasses, which if, you know, someone came up to me and said that, then I would be very nervous myself, especially if they had a gun. At the same time, how much of an imposition is it to put on glasses? If somebody's got a gun to your head and says, put on these glasses, it's like, okay, yeah. that's a pretty easy thing to do. He's not making me rob a bank. He's not making me climb a skyscraper. He says, put on a pair of glasses. She kind of confronts Roddy with that. She says, like, he's like, just put on the glasses and you'll see. And she says something like, oh, yeah, I'll see whatever you want me to see because you're pointing a gun at me. Right. So, but uh, she's I mean, it's with the tone that she doesn't believe him and won't believe him, but it'll say what. Uh, he wants her to say, what? but it's like, it's not, it would not be hard for her to just put them on. And the other thing is she's like about to put them on and she says that and he like gives up. He's like, ah, you'll never understand. But I think she would understand if she put on the glasses, just have her put the, she's basically offering to do it. And then she'll realize that you're not crazy and then you can move forward from there. But anyway. So it starts to simmer down a little bit and it seems like they may be, you know, starting to be cool with each other when abruptly the woman basically like knocks him out a window with like a, a swing of her arm and it's it's a brutal fall he like falls through this huge glass window because she's down multiple yeah stories. she's on this steep hill and like the whole front of her house seems to be glass like you know sugar glass like in an old west town and i was gonna say he, he shatters out he didn't fall that hard into the window I would not music. want the, yeah. I would not want those windows on my house because like a rogue trip sends you <laughs> falling down five stories or whatever. Damn, I tripped on my Roomba. Now I've, I've <laughs> collapsed 40, 40 feet. Yeah, and he's rolling down the Hollywood Hills all of a sudden. So now he, he kind of recovers from his fall, gets up, and he's now on the run because, of course, he, he killed people and the alien are on, aliens are on his scent. And at some point he bumps back into Frank. Keith David. And, of course, he tries to tell Frank about the aliens, but Frank isn't buying it either. And this is what leads up to, I think, the scene that inspired Will to pick this movie, which is uh, he, he tries to get Frank to put the glasses on, and Frank refuses over and over. And finally, they like get into a fist fight about it. But it's not just a fist fight. They get into a like six-and-a-half-minute-long brutal fight that whenever you think it's over it's it's just gotten started and let's talk a little bit about this fight because i think this is uh one of the iconic things about this film so will tell us a little bit about this fight so from the start i think they're like trading blows and right off the bat i think anybody who has ever seen a professional wrestling match at this point if you were not convinced so far that this guy was a professional wrestler this would do it to you because the way he lifts people where he's He's got him by the throat, but he also has another arm on him, so he's not actually lifting him by the throat. And all their like throws and stuff like that that they do, they all it all just reeks of WWE and uh, whatnot. And um, it's just they're they're getting beat up, they're bleeding, and they're all on the ground punching each other in the face. And at one point, Keith David's head is smashed against the ground a few times. And Brian uh, commented that he got the the heebies and the jeebies looking at the open wound on the back of Keith David's head. And they're going at each other with two by fours. And then there's this one uh, comedic moment where Roddy accidentally uh, breaks the window of Keith David's car, I guess. And then Keith David tries to smash a bottle, but the entire bottle smashes in his hand. And it's just it's so over the top that it is humorous. And at some point, I think the fight recognizes the comedy, but it's just like it's so long. Yeah, it's obvious that this is an important scene in the film for whatever reason. 
I mean, it's very apparent that they cast a professional wrestler in the lead role so that he could do this. And I think the message is that the underclass is too busy fighting themselves to rise up against the oppressors. And I think it's important that it's a white man and a black man who are doing that to each other. And this, to me, further emphasizes that this is left tilting and not right tilting. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Like, this fight, it's literally two homeless people. It's like one is trying to... He's just brutally beating his friend or his co-worker, his cohort, to just see the truth. And throughout the movie, and at this moment, I really thought about The Matrix. So in The Matrix, you get, like, the the red pill and the blue pill, right? You know, take the blue pill and everything goes back to normal and the red pill and you see the matrix or you realize what's going on. I don't know the exact quote from Morpheus, but, um, and then in this movie, there's no red pill and blue pill. There's just a guy swinging a two by four at you, uh, telling you to put the glasses on so you can see what he sees. And I think, um, the word I would use is for this fight is artless in the sense that it's very different from the graceful martial arts fights that are very, choreographed but there's just like a fluidity to the movement of those types of martial arts movies whereas this one is just like blunt hamsticks smacking each other yeah it's, it's a brawl it's not it's not like yeah it's not a duel it's a brawl they're right. they're punching each other and throwing each other against walls and smashing each other on the ground and there's a lot of blood flowing down there they've got like abrasions and stuff like that mm, hamsticks hamsticks <laughs> One thing I read, there's a famous fight from a 1950s John Ford film called The Quiet Man, and that Carpenter was inspired by that. And basically the premise of that is in the climax, I haven't seen it, but from what I understand, in the climax of the film, the hero and the villain basically just have a a several minute fight that just spans the entire set yeah, like they the like keep traveling. Town. Yeah. Yeah. Going from place to place and just still fighting. And just keeps going on and on. So I think that this is in a similar vintage where the endurance is, is very much an aesthetic aspect of it. But by the end, the, he manages to get the sunglasses on Frank. So Frank now has the true sight as well. And they bump into Gilbert, who was, if you'll recall, the head of the shanty town that got busted. And Gilbert's like, hey, we're having a secret anti-alien group meeting. You want to come join our secret anti-alien group meeting? I got to wear sunglasses more often. If the, <laughs> It means you get invited to a conspiracy uh, coffee night or whatever it is over there. Yeah. I got to say, as much as I would have been out on most of the actions here, if a guy came to me and said, hey, do you want to come to secret anti-alien <laughs> meeting? I'm in. And then you show up there and there's like a lumberjack redneck with a shotgun standing out front being like, did anybody follow you? I'm there, man. I'm surprised as many people made it out of the initial massacre as did because we saw the shantytown getting all smashed up with bulldozers. And specifically, we saw the preacher getting beaten down. We saw the dude dude making the Max Headroom broadcast getting beaten down. Uh, But Gilbert, who was the ringleader, is still in it. Yeah, I guess I guess the theory might be that this is just like one. They were just like one branch doing the broadcast. They weren't the entire movement. But yeah, uh, most of them got snuffed out. But apparently enough got through that we can have a conspiracy night. What's the one in The Simpsons? The Stonecutters? Yeah, they can have a Stonecutters meeting. And they have glasses 2.0 now. 
You, you don't even need glasses anymore. They have contact lenses that'll do it. Very convenient for the costuming for the rest yeah, of the Yeah, for a movie. It's like, they, they were getting tired of wearing the glasses, so they added the contacts as the next prop. That's what it felt like to me. So even if I would go to anti-alien secret meeting, I wouldn't let anti-alien secret meeting put things in my eyes. I would stop at that prior to that point. And also, did you see the drawing on the chalkboard? It's like... A, a drawing of a, a human head with a brain and there's a whole bunch of lines going through it and like question marks around it at some point i think i would uh they would lose me with the yeah. anti-alien uh conspiracy talking points but one person who's at this meeting is holly so she has now received her true sight she's which kind of makes sense because he, he left his glasses behind at her house when he got knocked out the window. Mm. Yeah, so for some so context. you could figure out, you know, you could piece together, oh, she wants to put on the glasses and now. Right, remember Roddy, he took a full box of shades from the church and he brought it out and he took one pair and that was the one he was walking around with and he stashed the rest of the box in a garbage can. But then he lost that pair when he got bitch slapped out the window. Terrible place to leave something important, by the way. <laughs> Why the leave it in a garbage, garbage can? can? And then, lo and behold, he goes back and the garbage truck has arrived and has taken his secret sunglasses again. But he gets them back, and that's why both he and Keith David are able to have a pair. It's because he didn't just have the one pair. He had a whole box of them. So Holly, I guess, had his original pair. A couple of talking points from this meeting. One is that... Part of the way that the aliens are taking control of the humans is by manipulating the climate or they're getting resources out of the climate. So I thought it was interesting. It kind of read as a proto-climate change, a little bit of political messaging. Yeah, so I when I saw this, when I heard about like the climate stuff, the resources, I was thinking this definitely, it's like, so we've got the aliens. I guess they're the literal first world and we're the literal third world that have sent their people to exploit oh, our uh, resources. So I, I was reading it as a sort of anti-imperialism thing, like, well, they, especially with the uh, like Reagan and stuff like that. Yeah, they do say they're warming up our planet, so it'll be more like their planet. Oh, they do. Yeah, you're right. They say that. Was global warming a thing in 1988? I, I know there's like, they always talk about like, the, you'll see on online some news article from the 40s where somebody talked about it, but I don't know if it was a widespread understood phenomena yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. I'm not sure. You were born in 1988, Dan. Come on, why don't you know this? I am an 80s kid, yeah. so I'm the only 80s kid here. I could also be a 90s kid because I had most of my youth in the 90s. Yeah, so I, I get to claim both. But anyways, this this meeting, this anti-alien meeting, gets raided by the cops, aka the aliens, at some point. Uh, just lots of alien raids going off, I guess. And almost everybody there is killed, though not a uh, Roddy Piper, as well as Frank and Holly, both managed to make it out alive. And shortly thereafter, there's like somehow they have some alien tech, which they're able to trigger, which opens up this portal in the ground. So Holly's kind of run off in a separate direction, but Frank and Nada are together and they, they open up this hole in the ground and they jump in together. And now they're inside the alien base and they get... Uh, pretty quickly mistaken as fail fellow aliens or perhaps fellow alien supporters. Right, collaborators. Yeah. And this part almost broke the movie for me. 
it was real dumb to me that the aliens don't catch Roddy Piper at this point. Like he walks right into their big congratulatory victory meeting that, hooray, we've just smashed the <laughs> resistance. And, you know, like a day ago, they had Roddy's face all over the news. Here's this mass murderer. Here's this dude who can see. Be on the lookout. And he walks in and they're like, oh, hey. Yeah, it's almost farcical because even at this, there's this one point where there's two security guards and they hear over the radio, they're like, we got him. And then they like high five and run off. <laughs> it, it reminds me, you ever see Scott Pilgrim vs. the World? Mm-hmm. There's the vegan police. So after they get after they get Todd, who's the, the failed vegan, they do there's this like slow-mo high five they do and run off. And the, the guards running off that after they apparently got Roddy Piper reminded me of that. I recently watched the Jordan Peele movie Us and Jordan Peele's third movie just came out. That one's called Nope. And there was like a viral tweet where somebody said three consecutive brilliant movies. We got to be talking about Jordan Peele is one of the best horror movie directors ever. And this was just some rando who did this. But Peele himself replied and said, no, man, how could you disrespect John Carpenter like that? So I think there's definitely a lot of John Carpenter as inspiration for Jordan Peele's films and us. I don't want to spoil it because I recommend you go and watch that one. But this whole transition where we learn there's another layer that we didn't know about that kind of explains the sort of alternate version of people we see in the regular reality is very much a thing in us. So I was definitely seeing the, the Jordan Peele connections here, but this, yeah, the secret base, you're right. He Not only is he in there, but he's like allowed to walk around wherever he wants. And he's like, oh, hey, can I go look at like uh, all your super secret technology that <laughs> is the, the linchpin of your entire conspiracy? Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, let's go check it out. You got to mention they meet another guy from the shanty town. And he's like, oh, you guys are part of the evil aliens now, too. I'll show you around. Right. Because they recruit They don't just rule over humans. They are like trying to win humans over. And if you help them out, they're willing to let you into the upper ranks of society. And this kind of broke down the satire layer a little bit for me, because as much as everything here is like anti, you know, elites controlling us and taking everything for themselves, I don't think that. The, those same elites saying, hey, come join in our spoils is typically a major part of that. So I kind of agree, but I kind of disagree because I think there is a big talking point, especially on the right wing. The, you've heard the pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? And they talk they say, oh, this guy was born poor and now he's rich. So clearly everybody can do it, right? So I think this is uh, almost a lampooning that where it's like, oh, we brought up the one poor guy because it keeps the masses silent or whatever you know it's okay. like a survivorship bias or whatever you call it or you see you uh what's the old quote it's uh america there's no poor people in america there's just disgraced millionaires because everybody views themselves as somebody who is on their way to being rich not as somebody who is uh, downtrodden by the system one thing we see in the alien base is kind of locking in that they are traditional space aliens is this little bit of technology where they like turn into orbs and launch through the spaceport or something. What did you think of this one, Brian? It reminded me of Galaxy Quest with Tim Allen, which obviously was a film from a decade later. But 
they do something similar in that movie where he's on the bridge of the starship and they send him home, but they don't put him in a spacecraft. They like wrap him in a bubble and launch him off through space to get him home. And that's how these aliens get around. Apparently the final part of their tour of the alien base is this TV station, which is like the, again, the, epicenter of sending out the signal that disguises the aliens i think it's studio 54 is there any significance to the number 54 don't know me neither but holly is there so this is like when they they do come out guns blazing and oh holly's here hey holly remember she had been joined on the good side and they begin a siege of the station they're going to go and try and i guess take down the station but Holly outs herself as a double agent for the aliens. She was a covert agent infiltrating the rebel group and she kills Frank. Although this is kind of like an off screen death. It kind of shows her pointing the gun and it flashing and then it cuts away. But we, we see that Frank, uh, Keith David, he, he gets killed by Holly here. Yeah. My favorite part of, one of my favorite parts of the commentary track was when Roddy Piper says, there's no, you don't see him get shot. You could show it to kids, and it's like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. Not the, the 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 there's like it's so bloody in the um when they're sieging the alien conspiracy group. Dan, would you show this to your kids? Not my no. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you could do this movie at like thirteen or twelve or something. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a couple of things we haven't gotten to the uh, the uh, nudity. Yeah. It's just a flash of it. Yeah, but Nada is able to shoot his way through the building and he gets to where the transmitter is and he kills Holly who approaches him. He destroys the transmitter and he gives a middle finger to the aliens. And as this is kind of like the, the conclusion here, he has broken the, the airwaves. So now everybody can see the truth. There's no, nothing blocking anyone from seeing the truth. And so the film ends with this montage of, all of these humans now seeing what the media is really saying and now seeing the aliens in their true form for the first time. And the very last one we see is a man and a woman having sex and the the woman is naked and it pans down from, from her naked body to an alien man underneath her. And that is how (laughs) they live. 1988 ends kind of jarring because there had been no sexual content prior to that it's just bizarre yeah like what i what is the purpose of this ending that's i guess that's my first question that now that we've come to the end why did it end with the 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 sex thing i mean it's they're in their daily lives and now suddenly they're exposed so they could be doing anything and i think i found it not jarring at all i don't know i don't it was just i mean he was caught in flagrante delicta right suddenly he's he doesn't have his full skin anymore. They're getting fucked by the aliens, literally, in this case. I like that, Will. I also think there's something to, you know, how do you control people? How do you manipulate people? And sex appeal and sex being one of those things. I think there might be something to that, too. Right. So when I saw this, the first thought in my mind was, are there like half alien, half human babies somewhere? Oh, man. Good question. That's or, a great question. Or are the aliens the dominant gene or is the human the dominant gene? See, this is why uh, I was confused by it. It raised too many questions for me. Okay. Well, that's a great question. And it makes me 
wonder further a question I was going to ask, which is what do you think happens after the events of this film? That's an interesting question. I would kind of see it as like a, a riot by the humans Mm -hmm. to like try to uprise against them. And I I think this is sort of like a political fantasy of seeing everybody, all, all the downtrodden, all the lower class uniting and, and rising up against the people who are plundering them. And I think, uh, the movie maybe wants us to think that that's what might happen were we to all open our eyes is we would have the power because we would see the truth. We would control it, not the aliens, not the sure. But I mean, if it's like, if they have the approximate strength of a human and they have all the resources, still all the money, all the levers of power, all the weapons, you know, what is the number balances? Like, what does that battle look like? That's true. They might have like the, the firepower and the tech, but I, I still think the, the aliens real weapon was that nobody knew who they were. Control. So now you know who your enemy is. You can see it very clearly and you can fight against that. And we don't get enough of a vision, but just by kind of extrapolating and bringing in what is clearly the politics of the movie into it, I would imagine there's far more humans that are getting exploited than there are exploiters who are like rising to the 1%. Yeah, I can tell you, I read the, while we were watching the commentary track, this is based off of a, a, both a short story and a comic. And I did not read the comic, but I read the short story, which is five or six pages, quite short. And the way it's like the stinger of the short story is Nada was not alive to see the, uh, he was alive to see the war start, but he wasn't alive to see its end basically so i guess it's a victory so basically the implication is that the humans win a war win the war as the uh result of his exploits so if if we're going by the short story then it's a human versus alien wars that the humans eventually triumph in but uh i don't know if we want to go with that a couple of tidbits from the commentary i wanted to sprinkle in before we get to our good things not so good things our rating and then our top five so one is um at the beginning of the film, we had the preacher giving his little sermon and then some of the, the other people kind of talking about what they were seeing with the aliens before we saw it. And one thing we learned was that um, Carpenter took inspiration from Macbeth, the witches of the beginning, who are kind of telling a prophecy for what's to come. And I kind of like that. I think that's a good a good story structure. Yeah, what did he say? He said the blind who can see, which is somewhat, I guess, I guess a Shakespearean construct. So um, Another interesting thing we learned is that Carpenter and Roddy Piper actually met at perhaps the most historic pro wrestling event ever, uh, WrestleMania three. I think that was the one where Hulk Hogan picks up Andre the Giant and like tears a muscle doing so. I think that's one of, if not the reason why it was so famous, because uh, they were like, that was the title match. And I think that was just as pro wrestling was really starting to break out too. Mm hmm. Unrelated, but another cultural touchstone that was on my mind watching this. 1988 was also the year the Pee Wee's Playhouse Christmas special came out. (laughs) Any particular reason that one came to mind? Just a bunch of 80s guest stars. Okay, yeah. Yeah, apparently it it had the record for the largest indoor event until 1999, and it was in... Oh, it was in 1987. So it had the record for the largest indoor event for 12 years from 1987 to 1999. What? Well, wait, if it was in 1987, it means they must have met right before they started filming the movie. Because the movie came out in 1988 and this was in March 1987. Yeah, probably not too long before. 
another thing I liked from the commentary that made me laugh is Roddy Piper had this anecdote he repeated like four times, which is that fans thought that his body was digitally altered or digitally placed on some bodybuilder because he looked more buff in the movie than he did in wrestling. Yeah, he kept on saying, they put my, they thought you put my head on a bodybuilder or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, it made me laugh. Last thing I really liked was uh, apparently they rehearsed that fight, that iconic fight for two months, which is pretty awesome that they got to really nail it and well, shows you how much effort they put into getting it right. The other thing was they rehearsed it in John Carpenter's backyard is what they said. <laughs> All right. Any other things you wanted to add observations? Just a couple of like the as far as like the editing goes, there's a lot of like especially early in the movie, cutting between like the high class stuff and the low class stuff, sort of really cementing the rich poor divide early on. And obviously that bore out at the sort of alien not so alien thing. Right. I really liked how it would cut to the broadcasts of these very bourgeois over the top materialist eighties ads. And then it would cut back out to the lived experience of these homeless people in the junk town. Yeah. And another thing, uh, I guess it's a good thing, but I don't know. I really like Keith David's delivery on like every line is always, there's, he just has a First of all, his voice is, I don't know like how to describe it. It's like really deep and really rich. And just the way he delivers lines is really good. There's one point after the big brawl where they go to the, hotel and he leans they're all beat up and they're wearing the sunglasses and he leads forward up to the teller and he's like we need a room it's like the way he says it is like it's very pointed and it's just uh i really liked his delivery for a lot of the lines yeah he's got a, a sonorous voice he's mm-hmm. like it uh, i like it too for sure all right let's talk some good things and not so good things um what are some things you liked or didn't like brian why don't why don't you okay. share something i really dig the vibe of this movie there is like almost a subgenre of 80s sci-fi where it you know you got to have the practical effects and uh there are a few this one made me specifically think of um one was Night of the Comet which is a 80s movie about this uh comet that passes over Los Angeles and it turns everybody to dust except for people who for one reason or another were like in a bank vault. And so this very small group of survivors meets each other and the sky is this deep red color and they're just walking around LA. And uh, I don't remember if it was while we were recording, but Dan was talking about this movie, especially at the beginning, kind of having a post-apocalyptic vibe. And that's what I was feeling a little bit. That against the, the clashing images of 80s materialism i really dug yeah speaking of the effects i was a big fan of like whenever he put on the sunglasses i thought it all looked really really good with there's one i think shot with their spaceship blew up that wasn't the greatest uh like cg but like the shots of all the signs saying obey and uh consume breed and reproduce and then he would take the sunglasses off and you would see like you know the advertisements as they were the stuff like that I thought was really effective and uh, evocative. Like I thought it looked really good as well. It was convincing because in the commentary he said a lot, of, a lot of it was like matte paintings or whatever. And I thought they, it all was, you know, I wouldn't have predicted that just from looking at it. that stretch when he puts on the sunglasses, I think is absolutely terrific. It just really effectively communicates what is the core theme of the film visually. It's like it, you get it there. 
And it also is just really striking to look at because you have this color versus black and white contrast. And it's like expressionistic when you see him looking at, at some of these places that just are like these black and white words with these long, flat white surfaces, like these images and words colliding with each other. It almost made me think of Dr. Caligari from 1920 or whatever it is, where you have like these kind of weird shaped walls that are all very flat, but like very twisted proportionally. Some of the stuff kind of looked like that a couple of shots. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah, I think that obey sign in particular has become kind of iconic. I feel like in there like a like stickers or T-shirts or stuff like that that uh, skaters put on their skateboard that say obey and stuff like that. Right. I think that's the, a thing. The street artist Shepard Ferry made use of it. Yeah, there you go. I, I don't know if it officially like it originally comes from this. I guess it's a relatively common sentiment, but that, I certainly thought of that when I uh, saw the obey sign. I, I also, I will praise, I the action is certainly very unique, and I kind of like the down and dirty feel of it. At points, it does feel like watching like an extended WWE special or something like that, but I don't think that's necessarily a negative thing. I think Dan mentioned earlier, it gives a uniqueness to it, and it might not be as like, it's not, it's obviously not well choreographed martial arts, or it's not like, you know, the super visceral stuff you see from uh, films that really try to prioritize like gritty, realistic action, but at the same time, there's there's, it's a performance art, and I, it, it, I think it's effective for these two burly, what would you call them, dead hamsticks mashing into each other. And I think it works really well in this context. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Are the hands the hamsticks, or is the person as a whole a hamstick? That's a new term for me. I came up with it on the fly, and you can project whatever you want onto it. I think I was thinking the arms, but I don't know. Um, yeah, there, there's a certain uh, oomph to the action and uh, the energy of the film, like whenever anything, something physical is going on. And, and I did like that, um, especially with Roddy Piper in the, the lead, they were able to do some of these like really physical stunts. There's just a, a physicality to it that is, is different from like your typical action movie, but it's still very much there. Yeah, on the other side of the action, we have like when the, the various police raids, and I think you mentioned the apocalyptic vibe, I really got that feel when like the police are storming the shanty town or when they're invading in the uh, when they're invading the conspiracy group, when they're gunning everybody down. And it's like it's just really hopeless and uh, everything's sort of being the people are being slaughtered or just burnt out of home, stuff like that. I thought it was pretty evocative. And uh, yeah, especially in the wake, obviously, police brutality has become much more uh, very. It's a very open issue in you know, 2020. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty evocative. What are some things we didn't like about this movie? I think the movie, the pacing, I don't know if it's bad necessarily. It's really strange. It has such a slow buildup. And then you get to sort of the, the promise of the premise of the movie where it's like him with the sunglasses looking at all the signs and stuff like that. And then you get the sort of the, the final heist on the news station it almost feels like a coda. I remember I thought I was like halfway through the movie when I was watching it and I checked the time and it was 15 minutes left. I was like, we just got to the we got to the heist part of the movie, but it really it just feels like the last bit where they're actually you know pushing back, and it's almost like just the stinger. It's not it's that it feels underdeveloped almost as the climax of the movie. Mm -hmm. The movie as a whole isn't very long. It's right around the ninety minute mark, and it takes him like a full half hour to get the glasses in the first place. Which I thought I thought it was going to open with him like just stumbling across the glasses and then having to figure out what was up, but it really builds that up. I think it's telling to Carpenter's purposes for the film 
that he devoted so much more to the process of discovery and how you react to that discovery. Yeah, and sort of the context behind who the main characters are, the fact that they're both like working poor, I think uh, is pretty important to the story. I don't, I don't know if it necessarily, there, it would be a di- very different film if instead of a working like a poor person, Roddy uh, was like a, you know, a middle-class businessman or something like that. It could, you could certainly have an interesting film there, but it would be very different, I think. And then this for me is not necessarily a negative thing. Just something I want to point out. I guess all satires work because they comment on the way things really are. And, you know, they pick at some issue that's affecting real society. But my takeaway from this movie is that there didn't need to be aliens for this problem to still exist. Like, this is against capitalism, that the the engines of capitalism create this inequity. And, I mean, even at the point we're at in this story, there's already humans sprinkled all throughout it. It's like these aliens aren't acting any different than a human would act who had risen to the top of the heap and is stepping on the people underneath. Other than warming up the planet so that it better matches their native climate, like, these are just people who happen to have Halloween masks that you can only see sometimes. Yeah. But I think think that's really interesting, and I think that's insightful, and I would imagine that that is at least somewhat intentional. It's like, part of the point is, they are just people among us who are doing things, and your takeaway is that the people who are really going to be the threats to us are the people who just seem like they're normal people. We shouldn't ignore the fact that they are still causing kind of societal harm by doing the leeching things that they are doing. Yeah. So I I was reading the Wikipedia article um, for the movie and uh, a quote that I found was interesting is that John Carpenter said a universal executive asked him uh, of the movie's premise, where's the threat in that? We all sell out every day. And he ended up adding that line to the film. And also that the aliens were deliberately made to look like ghouls. Because according to Carpenter, the creatures are corrupting us. So they themselves are corruptions of human beings. Mm. So I think they're deliberately supposed to be twisted forms of uh, almost like twisted human form. Is what I guess if we're tying it to capitalism, the the. Uh, when you have this unrestrained capitalism, what it turns you into, which is this exploitive ghoul of a person. But I also think there's something to what Brian said, which is that if you're coming at it from a narrative perspective and like, what's the alien's big secret and what's their secret power? It's, there isn't really that. They're just like other things that are kind of humanish that we don't really get further insight into what it is. I right. Guess. Right. And in a similar vein, I think you can say the same thing about the publications all this media that they have that now he can peer through and see what they're really trying to say with it. But like, I think if you read whatever the article is, it would probably make the same point, uh, you know, be insidious in the same way. What I was thinking of was in the Simpsons where they, you know, the episode with Yvonne et Niage, mm-hmm. where they say that they're experimenting with the subliminal, liminal and superliminal. <laughs> And then he opens the window and says, hey, you, join the Navy. Okay. I don't don't see why not. (laughs) Yeah. So I thought that was kind of what was going on here. It's like they didn't necessarily need this underlayer. They're probably telling you the same thing in their broadcasts. Yeah, I guess it's it's not subtle. And it's it's almost it, it, it almost attracts from it by basically tacking on the aliens on top of the world. Because 
normally when you see like, so I guess the classic horror examples, right? Zombies are a, a metaphor in many ways for mindless consumerism, right? Am I right about that? Oftentimes. Yeah, yeah. So um, in this, we have like, imagine if uh, like all the characters were already mindless consumerists and like the zombies existed on top of that. You sort of detract from the metaphor when you uh, do these things. So I see where you're coming from is what I'm saying. But it makes you think. And it's a cool visual. Yeah, we live in a society. Anybody else have any other thoughts on the movie before we throw a rating on or, or any things they wanted to share? Oh, uh, I do. I think I did earlier, but I wanted to praise the soundtrack. John Carpenter composed it himself. It really adds to the, like you said, the apocalyptic vibe, the sort of booming synths and stuff like that. And I cannot express enough love. Keith David has been cemented as an actor I like. I think I will basically watch anything that has his voice in it or him acting in it. He's just, in every interview I've seen, I watched a couple of interviews with him. He just seems so likable and just like a really uh, goofy, funny guy. So, yeah. It also, I mean, I would say this is a good thing and it only adds something, I guess, if you've seen the other movie. But it reminded me a lot of Dawn of the Dead from 1978, which also has some of that uh, anti-consumerism commentary. Uh, but it's just got a lot of that, like, Cynthia, as people are running around tight corners, blasting monsters with shotguns, and there's, like, sprays of blood, and it, just a, a similar feeling in that one. Oh, yeah, I wanted to ask, so I mentioned earlier that this thought made me think of The Matrix, and the sort of the big fight scene in the middle is a guy forcing his friend to see the see the truth. I'm just wondering, what do you guys think in that situation where there was some secret conspiracy and you got a, would you try and bring your buddy in on it or would you let them live in blissful ignorance? I guess that's the whole uh, question of the Matrix. It's like, is it better to live in ignorant, ignorant bliss or is it better to uh, see the light, even if it's, you know, it ends up getting gunned down by helicopters on the roof of a news station after blowing up a signal transponder or whatever it is? I think for me, it's a sliding scale. And, uh, on the goods, we deliberately avoid politics, <laughs> which I would say is just by the nature of the personalities that Brian and I have, which is that we might hold, to be honest, I don't even know exactly what our overlap or uh, disparities are. And I probably wear it on my sleeve a little bit more than Brian does. But in general, I kind of feel that it's only meaningful to open people's eyes to dangerous truths if it's truly actionable to change those dangerous right. truths. You, if you make the assessment that something can be done about it. And whether that change itself is even meaningful. And I think this way a lot, like there's so many dangers and bad things that could happen and ways that people could be working against you. And I think that a lot of them are true, but I think a lot of them are not worth the mental bandwidth or the verbal bandwidth to spend too long parsing into you know, obviously some of them are to varying degrees. I'm not saying don't care about anything that happens around you, but I would say also don't care about every single thing that happens around you. And that's kind of a general statement, but like everything from just like basic safety precautions, you can't prevent every single thing, but like on a cultural level, there are forces that they're just going to exist and you either need to ignore them or consume them and be okay with that. But like, Worrying about every single problem out there is not going to fix the universe. It's just going to give you bad mental health, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. actually, I have 
I just now I didn't even think of this before I said it, but I have these stupid policies I kind of govern my life by. And one of them is what I call the super volcano policy. And the reason I called that is when I was in like fourth grade, I learned that Yellowstone is a super volcano. And this like dominated my nightmares for weeks and months. And then at some point it clicked to me. I was like, it's a super volcano. I can't do anything about a super volcano. There's nothing to be done. Maybe it erupts. Probably doesn't. Hasn't erupted for a long time. Who knows what's going to happen? So it's a super volcano. But, you know, I'm not going to be the one to solve the super volcano problem. So when I approach problems in my life, I'd like to think about them as the super volcano problem. And is that is do, is there something I can do to fix the super volcano? Otherwise, probably not worry, uh, worth worrying about. I remember watching multiple specials back in the day, like on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel, of what are the top 10 things that could destroy the world right now? And, yeah, they're saying, oh, well, you know, the Yellowstone supervolcano hasn't gone off in a while, and... Solar flares and gamma right. rays oh, right. and, and yeah. giant and, meteors. EMP from the sun was one, and a meteor was one. And then, obviously, the, the last one, they'd say, and the most likely of all, because it happened back in 1920, is a pandemic. And then, well, That's that finally happened, so I guess uh, we're just about ready for that Yellowstone. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so let's let's rate this film. So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which we mark as a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So I guess the order that we typically do is would would correspond here. Brian going first. So Brian is they live good. This was a treat. I think I've undersold it so far with some of my commentary, but I'm giving this one a seven out of eight. Exceptionally good. I think this one has some super memorable visuals. It's one I've been looking forward to watching for a long time, and it's definitely the kind of movie that's up my alley. There's spooky aliens on every corner, and they're plastering up these things. You need the special Viewmaster Legend of Zelda Lens of Truth thing to see through. And, I mean, you got old 80s TV stations, which is an aesthetic that I like a lot. Uh, you know, it's the, the cable broadcasters who have all the power, which just think about how atomized media has become in the decades since. It's like nobody has the power of the big networks from back in the day anymore. No single source. Although, of course, you know, we've got big conglomerates who are trying to get there yeah that's something we didn't really talk about another question i wanted to pose was what what does they live look like in 2022 is it the television set dominating us now or is it the uh i think the obvious candidate is the smartphone and the the instagrams and the and all that maybe instead of sunglasses it's an instagram filter that uh lets you see the ghouls or whatever Mm -hmm. anyway i digress i mean i think many satires don't feel even all that satirical 20 years later and obviously we don't have aliens going around, but I think the mind control, you know, this technology. Orwellian thing of, of technology controlling our brains by directly shooting tailored visions that pr- alter our perception is closer to reality even than it was when this film was made. Right. Yeah, I yeah that's the other agree. thing. That's the other thing is it's more prescient than ever. So mm-hmm. it rates highly for me. So Will is... 
they live good. So for me, when I I was looking up this movie, I think I pulled up its letterbox page, and I think one of the taglines of one of the reviews was the Citizen Kane of B-movies. And I think a common problem with a lot of B-movies is the more you think about it, uh, the less good it becomes almost, because almost by their nature, B-movies have some corners cut, some you know small uh, inconsistencies or whatever like that. And for me, I kind of see that. I think this movie is great. I really like it. Um, I'm going to go with a six out of eight for me, a kind of mid to high six for me. I like a lot of the action. For me, the biggest problem is not those inconsistencies I uh, we've mentioned, but rather the pacing. Like I said, I wish they had trimmed the fat on the intro and stretched out the heist a little bit more. I think you end up with a more balanced product there. Uh, as it is, I think this one ends a little bit abruptly. And while I like a lot of the evocative social commentary and a lot of the visual effects with the ghouls and the signs and things like that, I think um, in the end, the the decisions and the pacing uh, result in a movie just short of spectacular. So for me, I'm going to land, I'm right on the line between a five and a six, and I'm going to land on a, a high-ish five. Um, I'm going to say this is a good movie. I did like it quite a bit. I think it is uh, clever. I think it has some really terrific segments. Um, some great action. I think the fight is really awesome and just the way it takes it to uh, an extreme is really compelling. Overall, the story was ham-fisted with its ham sticks. Um, <laughs> I don't know how much you could actually take out of this. Like It, it was almost so on the nose that it, it lost its cleverness to some extent. And I, I'm not going to try to go out here and like try and tear down why did I not put this at exceptionally good. It just didn't click with me quite as much. There's a lot of stuff I like, but but overall, um, yeah, it's it, it's I think it's I think it's a good movie. But for me, it, it the pieces didn't add up into something that was great. It was all just kind of interesting ideas, interesting concepts that didn't click into a a transcendent whole, but still gave a very enjoyable and uh, fun and occasionally thoughtful movie viewing experience. For me, it would have been and, an eight if he had uh, spit out the bubble gum before he <laughs> said the line. And I will say that this is kind of in the camp for me of Repo Man, where I something about the vibe, um, I just couldn't get on its wavelength. And maybe if I watched it again, I would. Although we did kind of watch it a second time with the commentary and I still didn't get quite there. But sometimes these movies, I feel like there's like a wavelength that it just takes me some time to get there and understand it's, it's storytelling language and rhythm a little bit. So what would you say is a more thoughtful satire, Dan, this one or the Disney channel zombies franchise? <laughs> uh, neither are particularly graceful. I would say this one is at least a little bit more intelligent. Like <laughs> the badness of zombies is part of the appeal for me, but that's a good question, Brian. This one did not have a, uh, an alien and a woman falling in love. Although I guess it did in the final shot with the, you know, the alien and the, the person making love, but they didn't sing a song like someday. So, so it's canonical know. that this is a prequel to the zombies <laughs> franchise now, right? Maybe this is where the aliens from zombies three came from. Could be changed their look quite a bit. What's my, probably my favorite like social satire movie. I don't know if either of you have seen it. Snowpiercer. Have you seen that one? Is that Bong Joon-ho? Yeah. I, said, I think this is the same guy who did uh, Parasite, right? Yeah. A guy named Kevin, who we both know, made me watch it. That's the guy who's obsessed uh, yeah. with Snowpiercer to he, the point he, that it's his license. Yes. 
It's a good movie. You should catch it. It's very, it's also on the nose, but it, I think it's a more effective action movie. It's also more recent, so it's hard to do like the, compare the effects and such like that. Mm-hmm. And it stars Captain America. So there you go. And listeners with that, we're going to transition to our top five fight scenes. So now, so we hope you'll listen to our complimentary episode. What are our top five favorite fight scenes in movie history? 